good day or good morning or good night, wherever you are and whenever you're listening to From the Bridge. I'm your host, Rick Jones of Fishbait Solutions, and I'm delighted you're with us today. We're going to talk about stories and storytelling today. My very special guest is Mark Wright of Wright Creative, who, along with his co-founder and lovely wife, Heather, knows a whole lot about storytelling. He leads one of the few African-American-owned agencies in the country, and I'm excited for him to share his story with all of y'all today. We'll jump right back up on the old soapbox and tell you about a recent gem I have found on the road with Rick. Grab yourself your favorite beverage and settle in. It's story time from the bridge. I love stories and I absolutely love telling stories. I'm a product of the American South and my childhood and even my adulthood too have been centered around stories and storytellers. Now, you know, I listen to songs when I write, and today I'm in listening to one of the great country singers, Don Williams. He recorded a wonderful song a few years back called Good Old Boys Like Me. There's a classic line about storytellers when he sings, and those Williams boys mean so much to me, Hank in Tennessee. Referring, of course, to first Hank Williams, a troubadour who sang stories in song, fun songs like Hey Good Looking, What You Got Cooking, and sad songs like I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. You know that one, the one that goes, Hear that lonesome whippoorwill. He sounds too blue to fly. The midnight train is whining low. I'm so lonesome. I could cry. The second one is the great playwright Tennessee Williams, who wrote this great line for Blanche Dubois in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. I love William Faulkner, Pat Conroy, Walker Percy, Cindy Walker, Johnny Mercer and Dean Dillon for telling such amazing stories. A lot of you may not know who Cindy Walker is. Cindy Walker was a, a female songwriter, country music songwriter from Texas that wrote amazing songs back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. There's a classic Willie Nelson album where Willie sings the songs of Cindy Walker. She wrote one of my favorite all-time songs, you don't know me. There's a great line in that that says, you give your hand to me and then you say goodbye. I watch you walk away beside the lucky guy to never, never know the one who loves you so. No, you don't know me. The great songwriter Harlan Howard said about country music that it's three chords and the truth. Man, I wish I had written that. I love Jimmy Buffett, Ray Charles, Dinah Washington, James Taylor, Billy Holiday, Lyle Lovett, Roy Blunt Jr., and Rick Bragg. I love the ESPN 30 for 30 series of films produced by the great John Dahl. He's a Carolina boy himself. We're now in the holiday season, heading towards Christmas. My favorite Christmas story is O. Henry's Gift of the Magi. It's a fabulous story about a young married couple. They live in a tenement in a big city, and financially they were really, really struggling. And both worry they won't have enough money to buy the other a Christmas gift. The most prized possession of the husband is his pocket watch that was given to him by his grandfather. The most prized possession of his wife are her long beautiful tresses, her beautiful hair. Well, for Christmas, he comes home only to find she's cut her hair. And she says, hey, hey, it'll grow back. Don't be upset with me. See, she cut her hair to sell her hair to buy him a chain for his pocket watch. But you see, he sold his pocket watch 
to buy her combs for her hair. It's a great, great, great story. And every time I read it, I cry because it's so poignant and so perfect about what Christmas is all about. The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. You know, stories are the greatest communication tools. The truth is this podcast, From the Bridge, is really just all about telling stories. My stories, stories I've heard from others, and the stories our guests tell each week. So you're asking yourself, what does all of this have to do with marketing communications or advertising, public relations, and sponsorship? Well, just about everything. TV commercials have to tell a story, and it's the same for sponsorships. When I start visualizing a corporate sponsorship program, I always begin with the story. What is the story behind this sponsorship? What's the story to make us laugh or to make us cry or to make us think or to change our behaviors? Or ultimately, what's the story to help us purchase a product? We've told you a lot of stories from the bridge over the past three years. Here are a few uh, to recap. Remember I told you about MasterCard's World Cup program. What was the story? The story was it had nothing to do with the World Cup or soccer. It had everything to do with the fans coming to America. MasterCard is a payment system, and we welcome the world to America. We welcome the world's money to America. You know, we have another World Cup coming to America in 2026, and I hope someone thinks about the economic vitality of that. Our country, the United States, is not a great destination for international tourists, believe it or not. Compared to countries like England or Italy, we just don't get a lot of tourists. Now, a lot of Europeans tell me they they worry about coming to America because they're going to get shot. They feel like all we do is shoot people all the time. Well, the World Cup and the Olympics in 28 are a great opportunity for us to turn that around. And I'm going to watch sponsors of both of those events to see Does anyone focus on the economic impact of international tourism here in America? We told you about our Bank of America Down Under Tour. The story there was we gave the consumer what they thought Australia was. They weren't ever going to go to Australia, but they wanted to go. And the story was we gave them an Australian experience in a traveling theme park. We've talked about game day built by the Home Depot, the great uh, program that Rob Temple, our CEO, sold to Home Depot. They took and sponsorship and created really a massive event that schools can't wait to host. But it is literally built by the Home Depot. It's a set built by the Home Depot. It's a bus that's got um, Home Depot branding. It's jumbotrons. It's a field. It's a variety of things. What is the story? Watch this morning and then get into Home Depot to do your chores for the rest of the day. Great, great sponsorship. We've talked about the Chick-fil-A cows. Instead of me telling you to eat more chicken, how about a cow telling you to eat more chicken? Which means don't eat me. (laughs) Eat more chicken. Leave me alone. I love that story. We've told you about the Warner Ladder. It's the ladder of cutting down the nets in March Madness, but it's much more than that. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for how you have to climb the ladder to success during the season. I remind everybody, it's not an escalator. It's a ladder, and you have to climb it one rung at a time. And finally, we recently brokered a wonderful partnership between Luke Combs, Sony Music, and his wonderful song, South On You, with the Southeastern Conference and the SEC Network. When you listen to the lyrics, it's about if you come on down here to play football against us, you better look out because we're going to put some South on you, right? It becomes a great storytelling vehicle for college football in a conference where their tagline is, it just means more. All of these revolve around stories. When I start to sell a particular property, if I'm going to sell a bowl game or a basketball tournament or a country music festival, I always start with what brand should tell 
what story. One of the things we're working on right now is seeking a sponsor for the Grand Ole Opry's 100th anniversary. Now, that anniversary is coming up in 2025. Uh, So I'm looking for someone in 2022 to do a four-year program leading up to the 100th anniversary of the Grand Ole Opry. Now, where should we start? Well, the first thing I did was I looked and said, what companies are still around that were also founded? in 1925, that it will be 100 years old that day? And is there a way they can tell their 100th uh, birthday story in conjunction with the story of the Grand Ole Opry? One of the activation ideas that we have is a concept called Then and Now. What we would do at the Grand Ole Opry is we would show historic footage of a great country music singer like Hank Williams or like Johnny Cash singing one of their signature songs and then be followed by a contemporary artist singing the same song. Because a great song is a great song is a great song, and it's very, very timeless from that standpoint. People love stories. They respond to stories, and most importantly, they remember stories. Let me ask you this. Do you tell stories? Does your business tell stories? Well, it better. My special guest today is my new friend, Mark Wright of Wright Creative Agency. Their LinkedIn page describes them as a creative, branded content and video production firm that brings professional and original reportage and storytelling to business. What a great description of what they do. They tell stories. Let's welcome Mark to the bridge. Hey, Mark, good morning. Welcome to the bridge. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you today. I'm really thrilled. Um, Everybody that we have on uh, as a guest angler, I always start from the beginning. Where where were you born and raised? Uh, You know, where'd you go to college? What was your first job? So let's jump into that. (laughs) Sure enough. Um, So I'm glad you're sitting down. I'll give you the abridged version. I was was born in England, in Wolverhampton, England. Um, Spent the first two Jamaican parents, Derek and Darth. Uh, who just celebrated their seven, 78th birthdays uh, this month, as a matter of fact. Well, happy birthday to them. That's great. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Big up to Derek and Darth Wright. Um, and I spent the first two and a half years of my life in in England, and my parents uh, moved back to Jamaica, uh, purchased some land, and uh, built a house there, the house that they still uh, live in, the house that I spent... Um, you know, years, probably years eight through 12 in. So for from two and a half to 12 years old, I lived in Jamaica. And um, on my 12th birthday, I took my very first plane ride uh, to Washington, D.C. on the now defunct Eastern Airlines with my family. We came to America to to seek uh, uh, different pastures. I won't say greener pastures because they don't get greener than Jamaica. Uh, but different pastures. And uh, we came here at that point. It was the four of us, my mother and my older sister, Fiona. And uh, we went, my, my folks, you know, sought to, you know, have a life here and to, to, you know, help their kids kind of figure out what their options might be for school and, and careers. And so I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, I sought to pursue a career and a life in journalism. So that's the abridged. Oh, no, that's a great way. I two quick stories. My, when my wife and I first got married, we had a, I worked for a guy named Norman Airy at uh, Georgia Tech. I was the marketing director at Georgia Tech, and he was an associate athletic director. And, you know, I think Charlotte was a school teacher at the time. We weren't making very much money. And, uh, and, and Norman's wife ran the contest for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and they had this thing called the Fabulous Fox Theater giveaway to New York City. And we were having dinner with them, and, and, and Peg Aries turned to Charlotte and said, I'm sick of ungrateful people winning our contest. 
open the paper tomorrow, you're winning. <laughs> and, and and the reason I laugh about it, we flew Eastern Airlines. I mean, I yeah. still have, we got on Eastern playing cards. I still have playing cards, Eastern Airlines playing cards uh, from that trip that we went to New York. And, uh, and, and so it's a great story of, of a rigged uh, uh, contest. I guess I could tell that now 35 years later uh, <laughs> about that, but it was fun. And then the second thing was I got blessed. There was a, a, a gentleman that ran the Jamaica Tourist Board and mm-hmm. and he heard me speak and said, "Hey, I'm doing a conference in Jamaica on uh, sponsorship for all of the uh, Pan Caribbean um, countries. Would you come down and speak?" And that led to four consecutive years that I got to come to Jamaica uh, as, wow. as the guest of the tourist board and talk about sponsorship. And you know, just fell in love with that place. I mean, yeah. you talk about lush and jerk chicken and music <laughs> and Black Mountain Coffee, uh, Blue Mountain Coffee, and yeah. just, uh, you know, the the whole scene. I, I just, you know, Dunce River and the, the, the everything. It, it's a yeah. it's a cool place. Do you do you get back there much? Um, so not much. So we were just there when we actually went, uh, Heather and I, my wife uh, and I, went down two weeks ago to get my parents. Uh, they're not too keen on traveling alone uh, anymore. So we had to literally go down there and, and kind of pluck them up. So we spent, you know, a, a few days together down there by ourselves before kind of heading down to the country and scooping them up back up. I'm sure much to the chagrin of my parents, my dad in particular, we didn't stay down there as long as he'd hoped and uh, would have liked. But I keep w- telling which, the old man. W- which was forever. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. He doesn't understand why you and Heather won't move down there now. And- <laughs> exactly. I, I telling the old man, I keep telling the old man, look, man, we we got bills to pay, man. We got to work. So uh, I, believe me, I've tried. It's not working. And I'll send him this clip. He'll hear it. And he'll say, yep. Put me on record. I don't care. I still want you here all the time. Yeah, exactly. Well, we have um, my wife's parents are still alive. They're um, my father-in-law is almost ninety, and my mother-in-law is eighty-five, and they live in a little small town in North Florida. And believe me, they would like us to move there. Uh, you know, they don't <laughs> understand that I need to be close to an airport, and there's yeah. not an airport. You know, Jacksonville's ninety minutes away. That's not going to work for me. But it's, uh, <laughs> but it, they, they are the parents, and we have to yeah. we have to listen to them. So you go to Howard, and you want to be a journalist. What was your first job? So I think my first job it was in high school, and I worked for a dentist. Uh, Norman Buckman was his name. He was a grumpy, just a grumpy curmudgeon <laughs> of a man. I don't feel bad speaking ill of the dead. You can't hear this. But he was just a grumpy dude. And my job was to clean the dentist's office and vacuum and clean the equipment and do all that stuff. And that was my that was my first, first paying job. He didn't pay me enough, Dr. Buckman. I don't care. Um, but you know what? Um I appreciated that that experience working for somebody like that because he held me accountable. And when I wasn't on time, even if I had to, you know, if I missed the bus coming from school, if I wasn't on time, he didn't care what the excuse was. And I learned a little bit about business from him. I also learned that I didn't want to go into his industry, but he taught he taught me a lot, and and I appreciated that. And I, I still enjoy telling him. Um, for my senior year, I decided, look, uh, I, I got to play high school soccer. Um, I've been working this whole time and I, I don't want to finish my high school uh, career without having played. So I remember going up to him and said, Dr. Buckman, I'm going to, I'm going to quit. And he said, you're going to what? I said, I'm, I think I'm going to quit. I'm going to play high school soccer. He's like, okay, at least you're doing it for a good reason. And, uh, I don't re- I don't remember there being a hug or an exchange of any pleasantries, but, but that's what Dr. Buckman did for me. That was my first job. That was in high school. My first job in, in real job was working as a copy editor at the Washington Times in Washington DC. And that was the that was the first real job like, you know, taking taxes and, you know, get, have to dress the parts and, you know, reading live stories off the wire and, you know, writing headlines and and not making mistakes and if you do make mistakes there are five or six other copy editors on the desk who are glaring at you, guys who've been 
in that job for 30, 40 years. Um, it was like a scene in Mad Men. But that was my that was my first first job after doing a few internships at Howard. You know, when we look back, you know, when we were in that, we were like, you know, this kind of sucks. I mean, this what, <laughs> what am I doing? But when you look back, you think about being at, at the bottom and 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 building your craft. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, I've always said writing copy is difficult. Writing headlines, you have to be very succinct <laughs> yeah. in, in, in the ability to do that. And so great than that. Now, when did you go to work for ESPN? So I, w- I went to work for ESPN. So ESPN, the magazine, um, yeah. launched in, I want to say, 1997, 98, I believe. Yeah, 97. I think um, fall of 97. And soon after the magazine launched, uh, so I was on the launch team, um, but I wasn't in the building when they cut the ribbon. I think I got hired maybe six, seven months after as they were building the team. So I was there from uh, from those early days through, and I was there for about two and a half years. I worked for simply the best boss I've ever had throughout my career. And I've had a lot of jobs and I've had a lot of bosses. And Mark Giles, uh, God rest his soul, was my boss. And Mark was a big man. Mark was probably, if he was standing straight up, he'd be six, 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 seven. But he kind of always had like a, a hunched posture because he was always kind of leaning down to people. And he was just an, a, a menacing, intimidating guy. Anybody who knows Mark will hear this story and say, yeah, that's true. But he was literally a human teddy bear. I mean, he was just the kindest um, person who understood that we have stress, we have families, we have th- we have bad days and good days, even on deadline. And some days you're going to be good and some days you're just going to be terrible. And he was just straight down the middle. He was just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And was John Skipper running the magazine? At that time? He was okay. He was indeed. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I remember uh, subscribing early on, and I, I had been a Sports Illustrated reader, as so many people had been. And ESPN, the magazine, was just so refreshingly different. Um, not 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 taking any away from Sports Illustrated, which I still think is a great publication, but it was a different kind of. It had a different vibe to it. It was about a younger generation. It was about, you know, socially responsible stories before that became vogue. You know, it celebrated things like, you know, the right. bo- the body <laughs> issue. Uh-huh. I mean, it just was a different kind of thing. Talk talk about what you did there and and some takeaways from that. It's it's funny that you you bring up ESPN the magazine and and in the same breath or context you remember Sports Illustrated. And I can tell you um the competition between those two platforms. So you got to remember, we took a lot of editors from Sports Illustrated to launch um, ESPN the magazine. John Papanek, who's our editor in chief, Steve Wolf, who's our executive editor, um, Lynn Cromando, who was our managing editor. These are all SI people and who'd been there for years. We kind of, you know, knew where all the bodies were buried at SI and brought all those secrets over to ESPN the magazine. And the competition between us was just so rich. I don't have any proof about this, but obviously you know that ESPN, the magazine, was a bigger book. And my understanding was the reason for um, a bigger trim size, the reason for that was um, the, the the powers that be, whoever they may be, names will go un, unmentioned. We wanted to, if there was a Sports Illustrated on the table, we wanted to literally grab us uh, ESPN, the magazine, throw it down on the table and completely cover up Sports Illustrated. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> like literally wanted yeah. to squash. We literally wanted to squash. That's and right. we would have, if you know John Skipper, he was an avid basketball uh, fan. And back in the day, he, he, he played a little hoops. And on Wednesdays, we would all jump in cabs and go to Basketball City and, and play hoops. And, and, you know, of course, you always pass the John Skipper, whether he was open or not, because he always he paid for it and paid for the cab and he paid our salary. So John was always open. He got more shot attempts than points. But that's that's what it is. And we would play against, we would play against uh, Sports Illustrated. Those things were heated. But back to the actual actual working there. It was a wonderful experience. And I started on the copy desk 
Um, I worked in what felt like a little batting cage. Um, three copy editors whose jobs it was to make sure copy was clean, copy was factual. It wasn't your job to re-edit a story that had already been through the pipeline of editors. And that was hard to do sometimes because sometimes copy might come to you and it might not resonate with you and you might have issues and questions. And sometimes, and I'll give prop to my editors there, uh, um, you know, John Papanek in particular, um, and I would ask questions as a young copy editor. Um, and I would say, John, I know we're about to go go to press on this, but this doesn't read right. I don't think this would re- this is going to resonate with a young African-American audience. And, you know, in fairness to John and, and Steve Wolf and, and Gary Honig and those guys, they listened about 30 percent of the time to the youngster. Um, so I appreciated that. And, and when I also expressed an interest in, you know, telling them that, hey, you know, I have a passion for writing. I want to write. Um, I love the NBA. Can I get an opportunity to do some writing over there? They told me yes. And I got an opportunity to write and be on the NBA side. And, and then when I was, when I said, hey, I want to write about soccer, soccer's a passion of mine. They said, okay, leaning over there too. So, I mean, really that was, that was the reason. Um, that's why I hold ESPN magazine so fondly. And the reason I left after just two and a half years, not because they booted me out. It was because I was uh, hungry and passionate to do more. And I didn't want to wait my turn. I didn't want to wait in line um, for my opportunity. Five years on the copy desk, five years on the NBA beat, three years on sock. I just didn't want to go that way. And I remember when I went to John Skipper and said, hey, John, I have an o- another opportunity to work at a, at a smaller magazine. I'll get a bigger job. It's not more money, but I'll, I'll get to do more. John said to me, hey, um, I don't think this is a mistake. I don't want you to, to leave. But if you ever get an opportunity to come back, you will come back. And I, John held his word. I ended up uh, going back to ESPN, not at the magazine, but working here in, in, in Charlotte, working for ESPN events. And then later for, um, you know, having a hand to work with ESPN films. And, and that was all John Skipper. And, you know, there is I cannot tell the Mark Wright story without mentioning him prominently. Well, you know, how hard is it? I've asked people this all the time. How hard is it when someone comes to leave to congratulate them, to wish them well and mean it? I, I, I've seen so many people that are like, well, what are you leaving for? I mean, you're making a mistake. No, no, no. This is a growth opportunity for people. And, um, and, and obviously it was for you. And then you came back. And so you come back and you get to work for my pal, Pete Durzis. Talk a little bit sure. about that. Um, I wasn't going to mention, I wasn't going to mention Pete because, um, I'm I'm lying. Pete, Pete is the absolute best as, as you well know. Um, when I moved to uh, Charlotte in 2007, um, actually I'll back up in 2005 or 2006, my, my my wife has family here and there's a family reunion here. And when we got here, we, we found out about ESPN in Charlotte. We didn't know that there was an ESPN presence in Charlotte. Like it, it, it was almost like just a different world. You know, the Bristol folks didn't engage down here. The New York folks didn't engage down here. So when I found out, I'm like, wow, Charlotte is nice. It's so green. It's so lush. That New York life, that New York living, we pretty much had enough of it. It wasn't conducive to raising a family for for us. So we explored some options here, and I ended up in front of Pete Thurses. And when I tell you about um, a connection that was almost immediate, um, that's how that exchange was with Pete. And I worked for Pete for, uh, I want to say 10 years, but in Pete years, that's at least 15 years. Uh, if anybody who knows working for Pete, uh, Pete's a wonderful human, human being as well. Um, Pete will call me, give me a lot of, you know what, but in the same breath, he's asking how my boys are, how my wife is doing, um, you know, telling me that, you know, I'm, you know, there's still work that I need to do on myself to get better. You know, just just Pete being Pete. And now that even though he's not uh, at ESPN and he's since retired, I still get to work with Pete or at least have him call me and give me give me hell. <laughs> well, today's all about storytelling in, in our podcast, and you got to work for, with ESPN Films. Talk, talk a little bit about that experience. 
it, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Now it's it's crazy how that happened, and, and you know ESPN, you know the leaders, the leadership have always said that we're not going to hold anybody back. If you have a passion to do something else, you know at the right time, you know let your manager know that, and if you can if you can get better and do other things, that's what we want to do. And ESPN uh, afforded me that opportunity. I'll go back to Pete. Um, when I got you know, an, an interest in storytelling using moving pictures. So the, to that point, I was writing and editing and and had kind of tipped my toe into um, features and incorporating video as well. I kind of fell in love with that. I've always been a storyteller that kind of way. Uh, always like a headline writer, you know, put the headline on there and the headline will tell the story. Uh, I expressed an in- interest to Pete and said, you know, Pete, I want to do this. And I think this can actually help our business, too. He didn't get in the way at all. You know, some people sometimes the biggest thing that a manager or a boss uh, can do is to help by getting out of the way. You don't have to come up with a, a plan or a roadmap for people. They probably know what they want to do anyway. And when they need you, they'll come to you and lean on you. And that's what Pete did. He just literally just got out of the way and said, hey, when you need me, come to me. And if your day job starts to slip, I'm coming to you. That's kind of how Pete sort of led. Um and so he would re- he reached out to the ESPN films people said look I got a potential rock star here who's got stories he's not coming there to replace anybody but there, if there's an opportunity for him to lean in please please uh, you know afford him that that luxury and that happened and the first major story that I worked on was the Redemption Song uh, documentary uh, which was the story of Howard University my alma mater. Um, winning a national championship in 1971 and then losing that championship and then reclaiming the championship back in 1974, the first uh, historically black college and university to win a national championship, Division I championship uh, in 1974. And it's still the only HBCU to capture uh, a national championship. Then and now. So I got to work on that story, and it meant a lot to me for many reasons. One, it's my alma mater, of course, but also the star on the team, the captain of the team, was my high school soccer coach. Who oh, wow. We always, <laughs> knew, we always knew that he was a rock star back in the day. I'm dating myself. Now, this is pre-Google, but he never, he never said, hey, guys, um, today's practice is about me and how I was a star. He just never talked about himself. He just never... <laughs> reference hey guys i know we're down 2-1 with 10 minutes to go um i've been here before like he just never did that he was just a humble um man and a humble leader and um to this day uh he is still a friend and a mentor and we speak just about every day still so the story meant a lot to me and i have gotten to know pretty much every living player who paid, played a part in those teams um and so uh, you can you can see where the if that's your first foray into uh, documentary storytelling, you can see why I kind of love doing it and love having that be the template for stories I tell. Well, then what made you decide with your wife, Heather, to start your own agency, Right Creative? So um, it's funny, and she would probably have a similar similar answer, but Throughout our careers, we always had a side hustle. Now, we we had our main gigs, but as writers, um, you always had time to do other things, uh, write for other publications, write using pseudonyms. You know, my, you know, there's there's a few stories out there with the with the byline M Wayne Clark. That's me. That's me. <laughs> Just so everybody knows, that's me. Um, the Emma's Mark, Wayne's my middle name and Clark's my mother's maiden name. So there's a story behind that as well, but we always sort of did that. So for us to, you know, after my wife worked, uh, she also a journalist worked in corporate for many years and learned many lessons and, and won a few rounds and lost a few, we learned a lot. And, um, after a while, um, as great as it was working for ESPN and as great as it was working for Pace Communications and, and having an opportunity to contribute to ESPN films, you're still working for somebody else. You still have to answer to somebody else. Uh, you still get told no more than you get told yes. And um, we just wanted to, um, when the opportunity presented itself, 
to do our own thing and pursue stories that uh, meant something to us and to work with people, A, that we know and trust, other journalists who knew the roadmap, who have learned the same lessons that we've learned, who know about accountability, and we wanted to um, kind of do that for ourselves. And we literally started the company in 2015 while still worked, while still having corporate jobs. So the company sort of sat there once we got our paperwork together, kind of sat there. We didn't really um, e e explore it until, you know, two years later when, you know, Heather drove into her job at Pace Communications uh, one morning and she had been kind of talking about making the, the plunge. And I, I was always a little bit gun shy about when that was, you know, when the, the timing was for that. And one morning on her way to Greensboro, and she did this, by the way, in the car while she was probably uh, 30 minutes out from Greensboro because she knew if she had told me that morning, I would have found a reason to say, uh, yeah, why don't you wait a little longer? Yeah, yeah, why don't you hold up a little bit? Are we going to call this play right now? You know, yeah, we're, right. we're up three points. Let's just milk it. And she called me and she said, today's the day. And I'm like, uh, at that point, I'm like, yep, yes, it is. <laughs> and, uh, she, she made that jump, and I'm telling you, when I tell you that Right Creative is the, Heather Keats Wright is the brains, uh, the, the, the heart and soul of the company, uh, I am underselling her. And we, we have, obviously, we, we we're working with people that we both, you know, have worked with over, over the years, but she dedicated herself to building the company into what into what it's become to this point, and I'm just so proud of her, uh, and I, I probably am just kind of you know I'm I'm following her lead. Well, it's interesting. I did a a show over the Thanksgiving week with my wife Charlotte, and and I, I said behind every successful man is a very surprised mother-in-law, uh, but uh, but the truth is both you and I really outkicked our coverage. Uh, our, yeah. our mutual buddy Rusty Reed, I remind him all the time that he's part of that fraternity too, the outkicked your coverage fraternity. Um, but well, what's it like to work? You know, I mean, you're married to Heather, but what's it like to work together? Talk talk about that process because I'm always fascinated with that. <laughs> well, um, I'll just say overall, of course, it's it's good to work with a partner who understands how you're wired, right? Understands that, well, in my case, Heather knows that I'm impatient. Uh, she knows that, um, you know, once I put my head down, um, you know, there are no distractions, right? And she also knows that I can work on you know, five, six, seven projects at the same time, um, at the same level. And she doesn't necessarily work that way. She is a, uh, a single, maybe double browser type of person, right? Where I've got stuff all over my, all over my computer. And so when I'm working on multiple things, and by the way, her opinion matters to me on everything. So if it's an email that I'm writing, you know, she has to see it. I need her to see it. She's going to make it better. Um, but now that we have a business, you know, Heather Keats doesn't have time to be reading my emails and looking over my proposals and looking over decks and, and so on and so forth. And because I'm impatient, right, that's also annoying to me and her. So I, I think it's a it's a it's a blessing uh, and a curse uh, in, in that regard. Look, she's She's also the boss on the right creative agency side, and I'm the boss on the right creative uh, production side. So, um, you know, she is in the West Wing and I'm in the, the East Wing. And whenever there's a production uh, question, you know, she'll she'll come down to me and whenever there's a, a marketing, all the marketing issues or questions or concerns or ideas, they go to her. So. It's really a great balance. Um, and, uh, you know, if there's seven days in the week, at least four and a half of those days are great days. Other days, since we're here in the house together, you know, it, you might take a drive and go work at the local Starbucks. That's just marriage, right? That is. You know, I, I, I can relate to the impatience part, though. I've told this story before. I was a student teacher um, that got hired at a private school 
on St. Simon's Island right out of college, and I had an eighth grade girl who was my teacher aide, which meant she ran off the you know, knew how to work the mimeograph machine. That's how old I am. But for my 22nd birthday, she gave me a statue of a vulture that I still have. And it sits on my desk. And the vulture says, patience, my ass, I'm going out and kill something. And and so this little eighth grade girl knew early on, she pegged Rick Jones as being a very impatient human being. So I I can relate to you and I can commiserate for Heather because I know my wife, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, uh, the the, the impatience is, uh, is part of that. But I heard Andy Rooney years ago on 60 Minutes say, if patience is a virtue, then by God, impatience is also a virtue. So, so, <laughs> so we share we that. share that. You know, I'm, I was intrigued. Um, you know, on your LinkedIn page, you actually describe your agency as being about storytelling. Um, yeah. a story. So, so talk about that process and some of the stories that you're telling, and and uh, you know what are not being told that you still want to tell. Let's go that direction. Um. Thanks again for for going there. You know, prior to our call this morning, I was sort of kind of looking through my notes and saying, okay, I'll make want to make sure I talk about this and mention this. And I came across our um, capability statement, and there's a line on there that I'll read to you and then sort of speak to. It says, "quote Content is ubiquitous, but solid brand journalism is rare." Our journalism credentials come from global media outlets. And then there's a little bit more. But where that comes from is, you know, Right Creative, Right Creative Agency, Right Creative Productions is not doing anything that anything that is brand new. And anybody who tells you that they're rewriting media, rewriting journalism, doing it in a way where nobody else is doing, pardon my French, it's bullshit. <laughs> um, but what we're what what we've managed to to do here is, and so we talked about headlines, and we talked about being factual and being fair, and being, so we are journalists. Heather and I are journalists. At the end of the day, something goes wrong at an event, and something terrible happens, and we're the last two survivors. We can tell the story: the who, what, when, where, how. And we think that journalism, um, because of social media, because of the, 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 the need to be first, the need to just get it out there, and we think that journalism has taken a hit because of it. And so since we know the rules and we're not going to um, compromise that, we feel that you know, that really enhances our storytelling. And, and that's why brands are now open to uh, working with us and understanding that, look, even inside your companies, um, your internal stakeholders need to know about you. They, need, they have their own stories that they want to tell. So instead of thinking that, look, it's all about uh, the marketplace, it's all about the external stakeholders, uh, and that's important. Look inside your own house, and what stories do you have to tell internally? Your your internal stakeholders might not even know anything about you. So we started there, and so we've been we've been lucky in that regard. And it 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 sounds like it's something brand new uh, to people. It's not brand new. It's just that um, there's been a shift away from it, and we're just we're just sort of making sure that we go back there, and then you know it it, it starts it starts there. You know, I think one of the criticisms of journalism today is what I call the lack of integrity. And, mm-hmm. you know, I worry that journalism is just somebody giving their opinion today without really trying to discover what the facts were. And I think for businesses, you know, sometimes you have to analyze the brutal truths um, and you have to have a, a reporter's view of of that um, because a lot of times companies can't see the forest for the trees and don't understand, mm-hmm. hey, what are we doing incorrectly that we need to correct? And then, but also, what are we doing really well that we haven't told that story to ourselves or to or to others in a way that that's meaningful to our business? Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, you're 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 also in a unique position that you're you're a black owned agency, uh, which I think is is unfortunately rare, um, mm-hmm. and 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 so there's a responsibility to tell maybe some of those stories, but y'all don't just tell black stories. I mean, you, you tell stories. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we we're definitely proud to be you know, African-American and, and a woman-owned business. Um, we're proud of that. It's, it's um, you know, we we don't beat our chest with it. We don't have T-shirts with it. But, you know, we walk into a room, we're proud of that. Um, but as important as that is to us, it it is equally important to us that um, we tell stories that matter to us. And anybody that we work with, they know that when we come to a story, we're going to come to it with, with, uh, with, with lens that speak to uh, fairness and lens that speak to um, uh, making sure that we bring diverse thoughts and diverse opinions. Um, And, you know, it's, it's not us on a soapbox. Um, And then, so the, the beauty about it, and Heather says this all the time, is, and this might sound braggadocious, so I won't try to uh, not make it sound braggadocious. We just do stories and work with brands and people that we like and that matter to us. And if your ideals don't align with ours, we're not likely to work with you. Uh, and that's just... Bottom line, and even and we're not saying that we just want to work with people who uh, agree with all of our thought. We we want to have health, healthy debates. We want to have healthy conversations about um, race and diversity and inclusion and maybe sometimes politics and history. Um, but at the end of the day, those conversations reveal character, and we make the decision now because we work for ourselves. Our names on the, on the billboard. We make the decision, of, all right, we're going to work with you because we see an opportunity where we can not necessarily change your opinions, but at least open up your ears and your eyes to to another another um, way of looking at things or maybe looking at the world. So, I mean, it, this is a again. I apologize if that sounds too braggadocious, but that's that's just kind of how it is. No, no, I love that. I, you know, I, I've always said this. Uh, I, in fact, I had an old friend that ran a big agency, and he, and he once said to me something that I thought was really wise. He said, great agencies are known for what they turn down more than what they do. Mm. And, I, and I always thought about that. You know, if, if it's out of alignment with your value system, yeah, it's not going to work. Right. And, and not only that, you're going to do a disservice to yourself and to the brand. And and I, I've, you know, I've had some in my career some businesses that were very lucrative that I just said I'm not going to compromise where I'm going. We worked for a big telco company around the Olympic Games in '96, and we had all, an all women team, and that client was abusive to the women. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, sexual mm-hmm. harassment, abuse, I mean, ridiculous stuff. And I finally, yes. I finally went and took the principal to, to, to lunch and said, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, this isn't working for us. And he said something really interesting to me. He said, he said, Rick, I've never been talked to this way by a vendor. <laughs> and I said, you know, that's the issue. I thought we were your partner, not your vendor. Um, mm. And and you draw a line in the sand. I mean, at that point, you go, it's not worth it. And I love the fact that you did that. And that's not bragging. That's just, you know, my mom used to say, if you've done it, it ain't bragging. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and 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 so I like that that lens. I also like, you know, we are having an issue with race in America. God, we've had an issue with race in America forever. We continue to have that issue. And I think we continue to have that issue because we do not listen to each other. Yeah. We just don't listen. Mm-hmm. And y'all bring a voice that I think is an essential voice to that. You know, I had a, a several years ago, I did a show about race, you know, coming out of George Floyd. And I got my really dear friend, Ernie Kent, a, a, a great African-American man and a great basketball coach. And I said, Ernie, I, I, I'm going to sit back. I need to listen to you today. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I, I, I need to hear your voice 
and and I think people need to hear y'all's voice. Uh, yeah, I, I think that is a a very very important thing. Let's link it back now. What are some stories that haven't been told that you want to tell? Um, it's it's funny that you you bring up uh, that we're here now, and I'll tell you, I haven't told this to many people. Maybe just privately to a friend or two, but. You know, when I came to this country as a 12-year-old, again, on Eastern Airlines, my first uh, flight landed in Washington, D.C. on May 7th in the early 80s. And when we got to my aunt's house, she turned on Channel 9, local CBS affiliate. And um, I thought for months that Channel 9 was the only channel that was the option. And football was on. And uh, the Washington football team and, and John Riggins and Joe Theismann and all those guys were playing. That became my team. And they're still my team. But after George Floyd, Colin Kaepernick, um, I fell out of love with football. I fell out of love with football. Um, I follow um, Washington on a very high level because I, I want to see them do well. I know whether they won or lost, but if you put a million dollars on a table right now and said, you know, name the starting 11 on offense, I'd tell you, just keep the money. Cause I, I don't know. And the reason for that is, um, that period 2020 revealed what people think of African-American football players. Um, for the most part, it's shut up and dribble it shut up and play. Your opinions don't matter. It's a meat market. It's next man up. Um, how dare you voice your opinions? And social media gave these athletes, and not just football, but you know, uh, soccer and basketball, really gave these athletes, men and women, an opportunity to speak their truth. And here's here's the reality with it, right? We're talking about the lion's share of these athletes who have not been trained to communicate. They have been trained to go to college and be athletes. Right. Uh, education was not prioritized. This is about sports. So God bless them. They're not they're not the best communicators, but it doesn't mean they can't communicate. Doesn't mean they don't they don't have passions uh, that they want to explore. Doesn't mean that they have hurts and feelings that they want to talk about. And I believe that sports, particularly football, didn't want to hear it, didn't want to hear it. And and I I fell in love, fell out of love with the sport from that time. I don't know that I'll ever come back. I don't know that I'll ever come back. And I think that that's one story. It sounds very personal, but I know I speak for other people who feel the very same way. Um, we might not see it reflected on the number of people watching t- watching the games on TV or in the stands because football is America's game. Um, basketball is, 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 you know, fastest growing, one of the fastest growing sports in the world. But that's, that's how I feel about football but sports is my is my passion you take sports away from me and i have nothing there's nothing to mark right so i believe that sports is still the unifying the the one unifying thing over anything else i'm biased over anything else in the world go ahead and find the next thing that can unify people as much as sports i'll wait i'll wait it ain't there and if, if you bring it it's a distant distant second so i think stories around those conversations still need to happen, Rick. Um, you know, it feels like 2019 and 2020 um, was a long time ago. Wasn't that long? There's still there's still people who who still feel uh, disenfranchised and still feel like there's things that need to be to be said and talked about with us without us getting all um, in our feelings about it, without us without it ending up in being contentious, without it being a, a, an argument, and without it turning into um, you know, who you vote for and what political side of the fence you sit on. I've always <clears throat> failed to understand if you're so certain in your views, why won't you listen to the other view? <laughs> right. I mean, you know what I'm saying, I mean, it's almost like, okay, if you're not going to listen to another alternative view, that says a lot about your insecurity of your views, mm-hmm. I think. Um, 
I and, agree. And, 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 you know, Jimmy Buffett wrote a song called Manana a few years ago that but the tagline goes, just remember, you might end up being wrong. Uh, and and I've said this about political debates. I, I, you know, I'm 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 no politician, and my, as my wife said, I would say something abusive on national television, and that would be the end of it. But but okay. the bottom line is, uh, I, I I watch people get criticized for changing their mind. Mm. Well, we've all changed our minds. I hope as human beings, we've learned, we've grown, we've seen things differently. And that's not a negative. That seems to be a should be something that's a positive. Um, and and if we're going to ever get our arms around race in America, we're going to have to first and foremost. We and I'm a baby boomer, white male from the South. Mm-hmm. We have to say we were wrong. You ha- yeah. Yeah, okay? That's okay. Let's start with that. And now I'm going to move on, and I'm going to do the right thing. Uh, and, 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 but you don't do the right thing unless you listen to other people and see, I haven't thought about that position before. I haven't walked in your shoes. I haven't seen that. And, and, and I I think that's, that's very, very dangerous. Um, you know, when we're all so certain in our ways, I heard uh, just a ridiculous story this week that a, a, a friend of our son is going to marry a, 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 a woman who's a newscaster in Nashville, but because he's not a Southern Baptist, they've disowned her. Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> are, are you kidding me? I mean, at what point is your daughter not more valuable than your beliefs? Yeah. Um, and I, 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 but I just don't understand people. But I love the fact that you and Heather have a, have, have a microphone right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have the ability now to to tell stories from a point of view that I think are, are very, very valuable right, right mm-hmm. now. Um, what what do y'all want to do with your agency going forward? I mean, you're kind of you're settling in, yeah. You know, and and you know, COVID was a big curveball for all of us. Um, yeah. You know that none of us saw coin, but in a funny way, my wife on that same show that we did the other day said, "I'm thankful for COVID." Yeah. I'm thankful for what we learned about ourselves. Yeah. Um, what 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 have you learned, and and where do you want to take the agency next? I I tend to agree with your bride. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, with respect to uh, you know people who have been uh, hurt by COVID, who have been uh, who continue to be hurt by COVID and lost uh, uh, loved ones. Um, you know, I think this pandemic was an opportunity for the world, for the world to pause. Like we literally had to pause and take stock of ourselves, the way we live uh, and take stock of our relationships. And sometimes that's just, you know, how it has to be because what else is going to make us collectively pause has to be a pandemic, right? Has to be something that uh, affects the world um, at the same time, right? So um, I, I, I agree. And I think we've had, you know, the world over relationships that have been tightened as a result for the better. Um, but I think, you know, for, for us, you know, it, it really created an opportunity for our voices to be heard. And I'm talking about Heather and I specifically. Um, when, when 2020 happened, you know, major companies um, where we had previous relationships reached out to us and said, look, you know, candidly and with some uh, shame or embarrassment, um, we we don't know how to reach the African-American community. We we think we we know we should. We know we want to. Um, We don't have a diverse uh, staff. We don't have diverse leadership. And please help us take a look um, at our footprint and help us create a, a roadmap and maybe a playbook for how we can get better. We had people come to us and do that. And guess what? Mark Wright and Heather Keats Wright aren't even experts in that. But again, because of our backgrounds, because of our journalism background, we were empowered to at least have the conversation um, 
better than somebody else who looks like us and sounds like us, but doesn't have the background and, and the training that we've had throughout our careers. So I think for that, it's, it's been, it's been good for us in terms of, man, where we want to take the agency. So, um, we have grown, uh, we, 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 we marvel at the fact that of, of sort of how far we've come in such a short amount of time. Uh, we're working all the time. We have many of our friends, uh, who, who work for us. Uh, we have a, it's, it's, we have a, a company retreat. Yeah, I said it right. Creative is planning a company retreat where we're bringing in, um, you know, some of the good folks who, who work for us and inviting some of our clients to kind of sit in the room, have some drinks, have dinner and, and talk about ideas and exchange some thoughts. It's not a zoom call. Like we're, we're doing that and we're blessed to actually be in a position where we can do that. Um, and you know, you asked us, Hey, right. Career is going to have a, a retreat in, in two years, two years ago. And we might chuckle. So um, we're just kind of riding the wave now, Rick, and, and, and seeing seeing where we go and continuing to be a voice and continuing to be a light, most importantly, um, and and having some fun along the way. Well, I'm, I love to go to the theater. That's one of my biggest hobbies. And they're doing a revival of the Music Man with um, uh, Hugh Jackman and, and Sutton Foster, who are two of my favorites. And the Music Man is the story of the con man who comes to Iowa, and and the line from the other salesman is he doesn't know the territory. Well, mm-hmm. the, the beauty is you and Heather know the territory. Yeah. Um, and I think that is so so valuable right now, and I'm I'm really looking forward to watching your continuing growth as an agency, the continuing stories that you guys are going to be able to tell. And we're looking forward to trying to work together with you guys because we, we think y'all have a distinctive voice, um, but it's a voice with integrity and it's a voice with truth and it's a voice that needs to be heard. So I, I can't thank you enough, Mark, for being with us today, for bringing your talents and your candor today to From the Bridge. Thank you so much. I am so grateful for the opportunity. I don't take any of this for granted. Um, so I am truly grateful for the opportunity. Thank you again for allowing us to tell our story. And, uh, and I'll say this, if you want the full story, um, the one with no typos and the one that's, you know, um, 100% factual, you need to reach out to Heather and then, uh, you can, you can put the story side by side and see which one, uh, was a better and more entertaining. But I think, uh, most, most of I can't tell our story without including her. No, no, you can't. Well, listen, pal, I appreciate you. Happy holidays, and we'll speak soon. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Rick. Today's view from the soapbox is about equality. Here's what I know about all human beings. We all bleed red. I was raised in the church as a Southern Baptist. The first song we were taught was a song called Jesus Loves Me. It says that Jesus loves me like he loves everyone else. But the second song I learned goes even deeper. It says Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. I love the word precious in this song. People are precious to God. Where and when did we forget this? I really believe I can solve all of the world's problems. All we have to do is just look at every other human being as precious, as valuable, as worthy, What do we do with precious things? We keep them safe. Enough said. This holiday season treats everyone you come across as precious. It will make a difference. That's my view from the soapbox. Took a little road trip a few weeks back to Myrtle Beach to watch one of our ESPN events basketball tournaments. Left very early in the morning and picked up my son Ryan 
And we drove and we drove and we drove and we had a few conference calls along the way. And we both got very hungry. Now, I love to get up early and do a lot of yard work and stuff and then have a late breakfast. And so we were looking for a late breakfast and found a truly memorable one in Georgetown, South Carolina. It's called Ani's, and it's a terrific little restaurant on Front Street in downtown Georgetown. This is an African-American-owned restaurant that serves a terrific breakfast. Why do I like it? Because they serve fish and eggs. You rarely can get fried fish and eggs, and it's one of my favorite breakfasts. So I had some fried whiting, a couple of eggs over easy, amazing grits, and really good hot coffee. I absolutely love fish and eggs for breakfast, and this one did not disappoint. But I'm going to go back soon for lunch because they had all their lunch offerings written on a blackboard each day. And this day I saw that they had 10 choices of meats, everything from fried chicken to fried shrimp to shrimp and grits to pork chops and even turkey necks. Plus, they had three types of rice, regular white rice, yellow rice, or red rice, and then a choice of 12 different vegetables, fried okra, okra and tomatoes, butter beans, collard greens, you name it, all to be washed down with a big old glass of sweet tea. If you find yourself between Charleston and Myrtle Beach on US 17, Turn right into Georgetown for Ani's. It's the best of Southern soul food on the road with Rick. Thanks for being with us today and to Mark Wright for a great show. I hope you have a blessed week. Happy holidays from the bridge. We'll see you next week for a very special Christmas show. <laughs>